calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Realm presents The Witch Who Came In From The Cold, Season 1, Episode 13. One. Zhuzhkov District, Prague. February 1st, 1970. Have you any idea? Jordan panted, running a handkerchief across her brow. What they do to grave robbers? Gabe whispered, no, but I'm sure you'll tell me. I won't, in fact. You know why? As it happened, he knew very little beyond the crushing pressure in his head. The hitchhiker was in fine form tonight. Or maybe he'd concussed himself when he took a header on the cobbles of the Starry Miesto that morning. It was all he could do to not bite through his tongue, so he let the crunch of his shovel be his answer. Because... She continued, warming to her subject. Nobody knows the penalty for grave robbing these days because nobody has been stupid enough to try it. Less hissing, more digging, he managed. His shovel hit another route. They froze like fawns caught in headlights of a speeding truck until the echoes faded. They worked amid 10,000 graves. A clammy winter fog had rolled off the Voltava, a mile or two to their west. Tendrils of that same mist, silvered by the moonlight, drifted like revenants through the underbrush of Prague's overgrown new Jewish cemetery. The fog turned their discreet flashlight beams into shimmering and very indiscreet halos. It was cool against Gabe's skin, but exertion and a hyperactive hitchhiker had him sweating like he'd just stepped out of a sauna. Jordan picked up her shovel and rammed the blade into the earth. Crunch. When you showed up at the bar tonight, asking for help again, I thought, sure, why not? He's making a good faith effort to work with Alistair. Gabe grunted. 
Alistair's lessons had been helpful, but they came with a hefty dose of ice propaganda. And like some gormless developmental, Gabe had nearly swallowed it, hook and all. But then he followed the hitchhiker to the barge and found, well, whatever it was, he wanted nothing to do with it. He'd solve his problems on his own. Thank you very much. I thought it would be something simple. Crunch, went her shovel. Slough, another load of earth tossed aside. But here I am, robbing a grave, awaiting a Kafkaesque nightmare when the police inevitably catch us. The displaced earth took on a metallic ozone tingle beneath the scent of moldering leaves. Something in the leaves drove the hitchhiker nuts. Gabe groaned, using his shovel as a crutch. I swear I can feel it, he gasped. We just have to dig a little farther. I can't stop now. They'd excavated a hole nearly two yards deep. Despite the static sizzling in his brain, he noted faint scents of salt and sandalwood rising from Jordan's clammy skin. She smelled like a shipwrecked schooner carrying spices from the Near East. The hitchhiker had all Gabe's senses revved up to redline. Her eyes were unreadable in the moonlight. The Golem of Prague is a myth, Pritchard. The hitchhiker hit him with another seizure. I'm not so sure, he gasped. She leaned on her shovel. You've wandered through this graveyard like a tipsy sailor for nearly an hour. You haven't found it because it doesn't exist. Wasn't wandering, he managed. Homing. He'd been about as aimless as a compass. What Jordan took for wandering had been triangulation of a sort. He didn't know how he knew where to go, only that he did. Same way he'd zeroed in on that wretched barge. A car rumbled slowly down the macadam just beyond the graveyard wall. In unison, they snapped off their flashlights and hunched in the shadows, listening for the slam of a door or the shouts of discovery. Gabe counted 30 heartbeats before exhaling. Jordan shook her head. The gesture sent eddies of silvery mist gambling through the gravestones. We're running out of luck, so listen to me, okay? The golem is a legend. It's a comforting fairy tale and nothing more. Gabe wanted to say, well, I'm pretty certain that something is sure as hell down there. Instead, it came out as, Gah. he doubled over again. Gabe, you're drooling. Jordan handed him her handkerchief and grabbed his coat lapels. We're leaving. No, we're too close now. He managed to lever himself upright. Swaying like a prize fighter, he hefted the shovel and kept digging. Jordan made to take it from him just as his blade thunked against something hard. Shine your light down there. Gabe? Please, just do it. Jordan sighed and cupped her hand around the beam to lessen the inevitable fog halo before clicking the switch. His shovel had splintered the planks of a crude casket. Huh, she said. The screech of tires pierced the night. Gabe dropped to his knees and started brushing away the dirt with his hands. 
The touch of the casket jolted him like a live wire. There was an inscription on the wood. Hebrew, of course. Can you read this? He mumbled. The taste of blood filled his mouth. The soft glow of approaching flashlight beams pierced the gloom. One set to the north and another to the east, moving quickly. Damn, said Jordan. We're blown, time to go. She grabbed Gabe by the shoulders and tried to haul him to his feet. He shrugged her off. Jordan tumbled backward. Her flashlight went sailing in a high arc, spinning like a lighthouse beacon, visible clear across the graveyard. Shouts and whistles echoed through the cemetery. We have to go, now, they'll have us surrounded. The urgency in her voice penetrated his fugue. Yeah, okay. A muddy fist, like the river incarnate, punched up through the moldering planks and clamped around his wrist. Eighteen hours earlier, Gabe had been crouched under the open hood of the Moskvich, which was parked slightly skew-whiff over a curb at the edge of the old town square. He cranked the socket wrench. Then he shook feeling back into his numb fingers, stretching until his back popped and watched the passers-by. Overalls, flat cap, seven o'clock, he said. Josh fished out a toothpick and grimaced at the side mirror. He dug at an incisor for a few moments before saying, you mean Boris Badnov over there? Must catch pesky moose and squirrel, Gabe said in his best caricature of a Russian accent. Josh snickered. Okay, said Gabe, serious again. Try it now. Josh hit the starter. The engine coughed for a few seconds, as if considering the suggestion before deciding, on balance, not to bother. Nope, said Josh. Still dead. Thanks, Mr. Peabody, I hadn't noticed. The temperature had dropped overnight. The gothic towers of the Church of Our Lady before Tin were a pair of burnt Christmas cookies, dusted with powdered sugar. The cold provided a superb cover. For a car designed and built by the damn Russians, of all people, the Moskvich exhibited a profound and illogical aversion to cold weather. Josh muttered under his breath, piece of crap. Gabe spat the taste of copper from his mouth and sighed. Oh, come on, you hunk of junk. He peeled off the useless gloves and puffed on his fingers a few times before pulling them back on. He crouched under the hood again, splitting his attention between the heap of fine Soviet engineering and the mid-morning police presence. Frank had them assessing potential routes through the Stare Miesto in preparation for Anchises. It was scrub work, and they knew it. If the officers working in Kaisi's found themselves herded into the wide open spaces of the old town square, it would mean so many other things had already gone so enthusiastically to hell that the op was a catastrophe. Gabe's screw up with Drahomir had cast a pall over Frank's faith in him. He'd salvaged that, but the clouds hadn't dissipated. So Gabe would eat this slice of humble pie, plaster a shit-eating grin on his face, and ask for seconds, like Oliver Goddamn Twist, if that's what it took to get a place at the table again. He shivered in the shadow of the old city hall, while the ticking of a medieval astronomical clock flicked ice water at him. 
At least Josh was in a good mood. He didn't mind being on the periphery of the preparations. It meant he was involved, and the boy was hungry for any piece of Anchises. Still slouched behind the wheel, Josh said, Look sharp, got two VB homing in. VB, Verena Bejpesniost. The Czech regular police. And based on their expressions, I question your mastery of local parking regulations. Quiet, you. Crank it again. Gabe dropped the tradecraft and focused on the car. The butterfly valve was sticky. It shouldn't have been cold enough for fuel to gum up the valves, but God only knew what passed for gasoline here. Half the cars in Prague ran on a hair-curling witch's brew of kerosene and vodka. Sir, sir, please, a moment. Gabe pretended not to notice the cops. To Josh, he called. Okay, I think I got it this time. Try now. A metallic tingle scraped Gabe's tongue like a wire brush. The insulation on the spark plug wires looked dodgy. He must have brushed one with a wrench. He pretended to adjust the valve. At which point he noticed the police. Yikes, you startled me, he said in English. Ah, the cop made a gesture that encompassed both Gabe and Josh. Americans? Yes, said Gabe. He peeled off his gloves and started blowing on his fingers again. Cold Americans. The cop frowned at the gloves. He clucked his tongue. No lining. He folded back the cuff of his own glove, just far enough to display a thick layer of fur. Rabbit, he said. Much better. Gabe nodded appreciatively. Dekuyi. He gestured at Josh to start the car again, but the cop intervened. Sir, please, you can't leave your auto here. He pointed up and down the cobbled lane. Narrow street, yes? Oh, we're not leaving it. We'll leave as soon as my friend learns how to start a car without flooding the damn engine. On cue, Josh jabbed the starter again, giving the gas pedal a good stop to ensure the engine flooded. Gabe tossed his hands into the air. Now you've done it, you dimwit. The younger policeman shook his head. Sir, please, this lane is not a... He and his colleague exchanged a few quick words in Czech and English. It's not an auto shop, yes? Oh, we don't need a shop. I can fix this myself. Gabe started to lean under the hood again, but the VB guys intervened. Nay, nay, you must go now. Already it is too long. The other cop pantomimed pushing the car. You push your auto away from the square. Gabe sighed. Their chances of successfully surveilling the square had fallen between slim and none. Best to move on gracefully. Very well. We'll help you, said the older policeman. Thank you, said Gabe. He leaned under the hood to clear away the wrench. The copper taste came surging back with a vengeance. Gabe banged his head on the hood when a jolt shot up his spine. It felt like a thousand volts. He tossed the wrench aside and slammed the hood, glaring through the windshield at Josh. Hey, Leadfoot, are you trying to kill me? Josh's eyes widened. He gave a minute shake of his head. I didn't, he mouthed. Oh, crap. Gabe hadn't brushed against the spark plugs.
It was the hitchhiker again. The VB guys had both retreated a step. Gabe ransacked his mental filing cabinet for a way to cover his gaff. Every drawer came up empty. But it wouldn't have mattered anyway. The jolt ricocheted back down his spine, as if completing an ethereal electric circuit. He jackknifed at the waist, slammed his forehead against the cobbles. The younger cop tried to catch him, and that's when Gabe tossed his cookies all over the nice policeman's fancy gloves. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Tanya's breath wriggled through the woolen balaclava like steam from a leaky radiator. It frosted her eyelashes. When she squinted, the world became a dark kaleidoscope. She'd been crouched behind a riverbank piling since the wolf hours, that loneliest stretch of night. She shivered again. It had to be at least 10 degrees colder now than when she'd begun her hypothermic vigil. The barge was a long, low thing, of a type used to transport bulk freight like sand and gravel. The corrugated iron hatches comprising the deck rose only midway between the water and the top of the tugboat's pilot house. It certainly didn't feel special. It elicited no tingle in her magician's intuition. Was Gabe having her on? Perhaps this was a, what did the Americans call it? Oh yes, a snipe hunt. But on the other hand, placing the safe house on running water and keeping it in constant motion would cloak it from divination. It was a tale of sophisticated magical tradecraft, 
yet Gabe knew too little of such things to spin a plausible lie. So either he really had found something and badly misunderstood it, or somebody was coaching him. Either way, she had to know. The bow rested against a piling in the center of the Halafka Bridge. The tug pilots had chosen this expedient, rather than mooring along the riverbank while waiting for congestion downriver to clear. Was the subsequent tactical advantage just a coincidence? Mooring along the bank would have made the entire length of the barge vulnerable to boarders. Instead, this arrangement forced would-be visitors to either drop down from the bridge or sneak across from shore in a rowboat, both options in plain view of the tug's elevated pilot house. It was an excellent defense against incursions. Well, mundane incursions, anyway. From a coat pocket, she produced a length of copper wire and a lipstick tube filled with the ashes of a particular species of Voltava river grass. Gathering enough in the middle of winter had been a chore, and she wasn't certain that the withered brown foliage would suffice in lieu of healthy greenery. She had to hope it did. If she got this wrong, or lost her concentration halfway across, she'd probably freeze to death. She smeared ash along the length of the wire and then wrapped the copper around her index finger, working from the tip to the base, then around her hand. The configuration resembled the coils of an electric space heater. Shadows inched across the river, night's rear guard seeding the field to sunrise. In moments, she gauged, the rising sun would peek over the bridge to shine directly into the frosty forward windows of the pilot house, and she hoped momentarily blind any observers. She crept around the riverbank piling. Every military and intelligence service in the world had its own version of the lieutenant's prayer. Please don't let me screw this up. Every sorcerer had her own version. Tanya whispered this to herself now. She prepared a chant. It rested on her tongue like a mouthful of broken glass. Then she waited and waited until there. Sunlight glinted off the windows. Tanya retreated a few steps, clenched her wire-bound fist and spat the pent-up chant at the river. Before her mind had time for traitorous second thoughts, she sprinted straight toward the icy water. The copper coil pulsed with searing heat in the instant before her foot broke the surface. She gritted her teeth against the pain. The magicked coil sucked all the heat from a tiny section of the river. The water directly under her boot flash froze into a thick plate of ice. She skipped forward like a stone across a pond. The coil instantly went cold then flared hot again, just in time to prevent her next footfall from plunging into the river. The wire pulsed like that, frigid one instant, blistering the next, in time with the rapid rhythm of her footsteps. Tanya left a trail of flows in her wake as she sprinted across the river. She lunged, caught the barge prow, and scrambled aboard. Crouched in the recess between the forward cargo hatch and the bridge piling, she listened for the thudding of steel-toed boots and the metallic clack-shack of chambered rounds. But nothing broke the tranquility of early morning on the river. If she hadn't been wary of her breath giving her away, 
she would have sighed. Nothing tangled her nape. Nothing fizzed at the tip of her tongue. She was lying on the damn thing, and the barge telegraphed less occult significance than a dead trout. If I wasted those ashes on a barge full of gravel, it will not matter how much Alistair vouches for you, Gabe Pritchard. She couldn't open the hoppers without standing in plain view of anybody on the bridge. She squinted. Actually, she couldn't open them at all. Nobody could. The forward cargo hatch was welded shut. Tanya was still pondering this when the putter of a two-stroke motor broke the soft lapping of water against the hull. The pilot house's port side door creaked open, and a voice called across the misty waters in phlegmy check. You're late. You're drunk, came the reply from the motorboat. Ah, the shift change. While the tug pilot bantered with his relief, Tanya scooted to starboard. She found an inspection hatch built halfway down the length of the vessel. This lacked the grimy weathering of the rest of the vessel, a recent retrofit. It was fastened with a padlock. Tanya unwrapped an inch of copper from around her finger and worked it into the lock. The keyhole sported fresh scratches. Somebody else had picked it recently. None of the ice's usual wards were active either. Someone hadn't been following ice protocol to check and recheck the wards. Not that Tanya should be surprised. She spun the wheel. The hatch swung open soundlessly. The cargo hold's magical aura hit her between the eyes like a hammer. It carried a hint of numbness, like the lingering traces from a shot of anesthetic. The hatch closed behind her, plunging her into darkness. She turned on her light. The flashlight dropped from her slack fingers to roll along the keel. The barge wasn't filled with wheat or gravel, or anything so simple. The cots were piled two and three high in places. Tanya gathered her wits and her flashlight. Only then did she realize how steamy her breath had become. It was cold down here, even colder than the river. Roughly half a dozen cots were occupied, but not by people, by blocks of ice. She played her light across the nearest slab. It contained a sallow, middle-aged man with a widow's peak of shocking white hair. Wisps of breath sparkled in the flashlight beam. Are they dead, or just deeply unconscious? What was this place? No wonder Gabe had been horrified. Tanya worked down the line, searching for any sense of who these poor souls might be or why it was necessary to place them in stasis. But they'd been stripped of any identification. What was the pattern here? What could... Tanya froze, clapping a hand over her mouth. On the sternmost cot, all by herself as though it were a place of honor, Andula Zlata lay encased in ice like the victim of a fairy tale curse. Whom do I work for? Had she been duped by flame all these years? An unwitting acolyte tricked into thinking she served a noble cause? Or even worse, was ice run by twisted madmen? Grandfather, I must speak with grandfather. Another horrifying thought. What if, 
What if the Dushka already knows about this? What if he knows and condones it? What if... From outside came a muffled shout. Heavy footsteps rattled the decking. The inspection hatch opened. The door to Frank's office still hadn't opened. Had Josh been in there the entire time? How much could they have to discuss? Gabe paced through the embassy corridors. He passed Alistair, whose cover identity from MI6 occasionally brought him to the United States Embassy, by virtue of the US-UK special relationship. Today, his contribution to the defense of the West against the creeping scourge of communism consisted of leaning rakishly against a filing cabinet and regaling a member of the secretarial pool with an improbable tale. Now, this was a bit of a sticky wicket, you see, for at that moment I was... Have you seen Josh? Gabe burst in. I think he's in Mr. Drummond's office, said the secretary. Her name was Junie something, as Gabe recalled. Alistair nodded at him. Ah, Gabriel, my lad. Yeah, we're all just good pals, aren't we? Nothing sketchy about you or your magical allies and their floating coma ward. Gabe resisted the urge to punch him. You seem a bit ruffled. You are well, I trust? Gabe jerked a thumb over his shoulder. How long has Josh been in there with Frank? Alistair deadpanned. Until a moment ago, I gather. Josh looked like Gabe felt. But the sight of Alistair seemed to brighten him. Gabe sighed. Ah, Mr. Tom's a pleasure, said Alistair. Josh nodded. Gabe, Frank wants to see you. Gabe took the younger officer by the arm and led him a few strides away from the others. He bent close, lowering his voice. What'd you tell him? You were in there a long time. I told him the truth, okay? That you're acting weird, that I'm worried about you. Worried about me or about what I might be doing to your career? Josh scowled and shook Gabe's hand from his arm. I didn't tell Frank anything he wouldn't have heard sooner or later anyway. Better for you if it's sooner. You want to get ahead of this. I can't get ahead of anything when you go running straight to daddy the moment we get home. I was trying to clear the runway for a soft landing. Gabe ran a hand through his hair. Thanks. As Gabe turned to leave, Josh said, just to warn you, he's pretty angry. I'm sure I'll survive. My career, however. Josh blinked. You remember the shovel story? He whistled softly as they rejoined Alistair and Junie. Two guys. I heard it was three, chimed Junie. And the third was some sort of special forces fellow. Ah, said Alistair. Now that reminds me of Calcutta. Gabe knocked on Frank's open office door. Sir? The station chief stood with his back to the door, gazing out the window. Close the door. Sit down. Gabe did. Sir, I said sit. I didn't say speak. Frank turned his attention from the window and pointed to a photo on the desk. Remember my girl's dog? He shook his head. 
damn thing still pissing on the dining room rug. Sir, fiddling with a buckle on his suspenders, Frank said, you don't piss on your own floor, do you? When you're at home, I mean. Gabe blinked. Uh, no, sir. Of course you don't. Your house broken. A proud day for your parents, no doubt. So I can't help but wonder why you insist on pissing all over everything we do here. Gabe kept his mouth shut. After a fraught silence, the station chief said, that was your invitation to explain yourself, succinctly and persuasively. I haven't been feeling well. Pritchard, if this were a head cold, I'd tell you to walk it off. But there's not feeling well, and then there's acting like you've got a brain tumor fixing to bust your melon wide open. I don't have a brain tumor, sir. Frank stopped and looked up. You sure about that, son? What if it was all in his head? What if the hitchhiker was a figment of a diseased mind? The hallucinations, the phantom sensory impressions, the seizures. But then Gabe remembered that awful barge, the way he'd felt its proximity, the way it drew him like a magnet. That was no brain tumor. Yes, sir. Well, that's a shame, said Frank, because then we could write off your behavior as a medical issue. He opened a drawer. Instead, it's a question of how many loose screws you have rattling around up there. Sometimes I wonder, sir. Frank produced a half-empty bottle of scotch and two tumblers. His prosthetic leg made a hollow clunk when he kicked the drawer shut. We all do. That's our legacy. He splashed a finger of booze into each glass. Pushing one across the desk to Gabe, he said, those of us who have been in the shit. Early as it was, Gabe knew better than to refuse. They raised their glasses in unison. De oppresso liber, said Frank. Semper Fidelis, said Gabe. Clink. It burned all the way down. The smoke that filled Gabe's sinuses tasted like a burning oak barrel. How long were you in the Marines before they pulled you for intelligence work? Not too long, sir. Middle of my first tour. That's plenty long. I've heard about those jungles. I know what you're going through. Frank fell quiet for a moment. I saw some shit in Korea. Gabe coughed. I hadn't heard, sir. Frank rolled his eyes. Jesus, please tell me you're a better liar in the field than you are in my office. I like to hope so. Prior to this posting, your reputation was solid. And after this posting? That's up to you. We fought hot wars, you and I, and know we're fighting a chilly one now. We're not that different. Lord knows, there were times when I didn't have my head screwed on right. I appreciate it, sir. Don't mistake me, I'm not turning a blind eye, and I'm not forgetting anything. But you pulled the Drahomir debacle out of its nosedive and even showed some grace in handing it over to Josh. That earned you this courtesy chat. 
But when you walk out of this office, you're officially out of second chances. I understand, sir. Gabe set the shot glass on the desk, lightly. Maybe you are smarter than that damn dog after all. That evening, Gabe spent more time and money than he could afford, staking out a booth at Vaudnar. He waited until most of the clientele had stumbled home. Jordan set down the glass she'd been drying and tossed the dish rag over a brass fitting along the bar. Without preamble, Gabe said, I need a favor. The glare she shot him could have stripped paint. You do understand that favors aren't like liquor, right? It's not the sort of thing where one runs a tab. It's about Cairo. Jordan held his gaze for a long moment, before finally relenting with a heavy sigh. Low blow, Pritchard, low blow. She squinted, pinched the bridge of her nose. I'm listening. Two shovels. She blinked, brightened a bit. Not what I expected to hear, but okay, I can do that. I need something else too. She cocked an eyebrow. I need help robbing a grave. You're listening to The Witch Who Came In From The Cold, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. The Witch Who Came In From The Cold is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Lindsay Smith, Cassandra Rose Clark, Ian Tregellis, and Michael Swanwick. Performed by Christine Lakin and John Glushevich. Directed by Dennis Keo. Produced by Julian Yap and Marco Palmieri. Associate Producers Corey Barton and Devin Shepard. Executive Produced by Molly Barton. Audio Production by Literati Audio. Audio Editing by Evan Arnett and Fred Koch. Mixing and Mastering by Jeremy Wesley. Original Music by Katherine Anderson. Find more shows like The Witch Who Came In From The Cold by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.